Father, some of your children are in threat of their lives to gather with your people this morning. Would you be their peace and their protection? Lord, as we come here, we need your protection and your help no less than they. Maybe not from physical death, but from the attack that surround us every moment. And it's not just from the outside, from the enemy of our souls and from our, our culture and the world, but Lord, it's from within, it's our own flesh. Come, Lord, because we could be killed without you. Would you minister to us today? Would you be glorified here? And even as we sang that grace has taught us, would your grace teach us today what you want us to know? We ask in Christ's name, amen. I'm pretty sure that if uh, Hollywood did the screenplay for David and Bathsheba today, that um, within the first few scenes of that movie, they would have us cheering for David and Bathsheba to get together against all odds. And they'd probably have us fretting about how are we going to get rid of Uriah and get him out of the way. At least that's, that's the kind of plot that Hollywood sells, sells on us, sells to us all the time, isn't it? And such are the waters that we swim in, right? Sin is not greater today than it has been in any past generation, but it does change its flavors and its influences. In the words of the ancient psalmist, then, how does a young man keep his way pure? It goes on to answer by keeping it according to thy word. So let's learn from thy word, from God's word this morning, and let's pray for grace to teach us. Let's pray for the grace to, to keep our ways. Our passage this morning in 2 Samuel 11 is organized around a lot of sending, I'm only going to highlight the main sendings today. There are a few I won't comment on, but they really give us the flow. It's a very action-packed passage, and yet at the same time, it leaves so much unspoken that we might wish to know, but the author of Scripture and the Holy Spirit, the eternal God, didn't see fit for us to know because it's driving to make a few particular points. We're only going to highlight the main sendings today. Let's start with David's sending Joab, and we'll see as the word encourages us, be about your duty. Be about your duty. Second Samuel 11, verse 1. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Pause there. Probably many of you already know that this is one of the takeaways from 2 Samuel chapter 11, that at the time when kings are supposed to be leading their armies out to war, David sends Joab and doesn't go out to war, but rather David stays back home in Jerusalem. I will say, after reading several commentaries, that I'm, uh, I'm struggling with whether or not the time when kings go out to battle is actually the, re the correct translation from the Hebrew. Okay, for whatever that's worth. But let me say that I think in the passage, the point still stands. Because it, it, when you come to the end of verse 1, the author has made a clear point. David is staying back in Jerusalem. There's been other times when David has sent the army out to battle. That is not unheard of, just so you know. 
for context. But I think here the focus is David's back at Jerusalem, not out at his duty. Also, we're going to find, I think, an emphasis in a moment when we get to verse 2. What we really find David about is, is leisure, uh, purposelessness. Uh, he's ripe for the taking. I think that's how the passage reads. I want you to just then at this moment notice the lack of purpose in, in David's person at this point. This passage can apply, no doubt, as you all know, ladies, to women also. But uh, at this point, I'm just going to say this application this way, if you'll indulge me. When a man loses sight of his duty, when a man loses sight of his calling, he's asking for trouble, right? Be about your duty, men, as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a worker, as a child of God. If you and I will be about our duty and, and remind ourselves, even, even when we're at our leisure, we should still be mindful that what we do in leisure reflects upon the way that we are about our duty. If you and I will be about our duty, it will save us from many disasters. Second, now let's see David sends for Bathsheba. Verse 2. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And after she purified herself, after she had purified herself from, he, from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. I want you to notice, notice the progression here with David. First, there's, there's the distraction. He's up walking around on the roof of his house. A very common thing. The roof in ancient Israel of a home is, is really another room. Um, that was the way that roofs were made, often with a, uh, a slight edge up, although not always, of the walls so that there would be some safety from tripping and falling over the edge. A lot of things were done up on the roof of the house. Question about um, Bathsheba's motive in all this. I think it's a far stretch to think that she's to blame in any sense. I think the reason David's able to see her is because his palace is probably one of the few, either because of its vantage points and or because of um, the size of it, that by his being on the roof, he's allowed to see others and the tops of their roofs. At the end of the day, there's no comment made. All we know, he's up there innocently enough, and at first there's a distraction. There's a temptation. But then there's interest in verse 3. There's, there's ascending again and then inquiring about the woman. We don't know what that means. I, I don't think he sent somebody to her. Uh, I think he sent to find somebody to come to him to answer the question about her. All I know is at this point, rather than fleeing the temptation, he's decided to move towards it. And that is the slippery slope beginning, isn't it? This is uh, James 1, verses 14 and 15 in full color. You can jot down that and go do a study of your own. There really is a whole study here about the snare of temptation. You can read that passage, digest it, and then come back to 2 Samuel and just 
check off boxes if you see things happen. It's probably not the main point of 2 Samuel 11. It's probably not the main reason why this chapter is here to teach us to flee temptation, but it is an incredible illustration of the snare of temptation for all of us. And scripture is true to life, so there are lessons to learn there. I want you to notice next the the juxtaposition in this passage of the holy and the profane. In the middle of verse 4, it says, uh, when she came to him, he lay with her. My translation says, and when she had purified herself from her uncleanness. The translations differ here, and I think the NAS is a little bit off. I think what it should read is, and he lay with her after she had purified herself from the uncleanness. In other words, the point here is not that they lay together and then she took a bath. The point is, is when he saw her bathing, the reason for her bathing was her her uh, ritual cleansing from her menstrual impurity. You can find all about that in, in the law, right, in the first few books of the Bible. What's the point of this? What is the, the author establishing by that? When she ends up pregnant in a moment, we know for sure it's David's kid, right? But I want you to catch also the juxtaposition of what happens. Here she comes from from ritual purity, from cleansing, and from holiness, obeying the law. And David takes her, and in an act of incredible rebellion and outright treachery to the law of God, commits this deed with her. There's a phrase of devotion to God right next to a phrase about betrayal of God. This is not entirely unheard of, in fact, far from being unheard of for us as human beings, right? Even, even at the farce of a trial where Jesus himself was falsely condemned by the Jewish leaders, do you remember that whole scene of taking Jesus to place to place? At one point, the Jewish leaders bring Jesus uh, to, the, to the Roman governor, and it says they refuse to go inside the house. Why? Because um, the next day is a Sabbath, and they don't want to be ritually defiled by coming into contact with the stuff that you always find in Gentile guys' homes, and that stuff defiles you. So here they are plotting murder, but they're worried about, oh, I better not touch anything that might make me ritually unclean, just demonstrating the farce of what they've done. And this is common, brothers and sisters, to me and to you. The human heart is devious and subtle in its capacity to bounce back and forth between the holy and the profane. If you ever doubt it, just know that even internet records will prove it to you. You can just read down the list of sites that people see and watch the bouncing back and forth in some cases in a way that just exposes the way our hearts (laughs) just jump after stuff. Be about your duty, men and women, even when you are at your God-given leisure. Next, nurture affections for the right loyalty. Nurture affections for for the right loyalty. We'll now see David begin his cover-up as he sends for Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, in verse 6. Then David sent to Joab, remember he's out with all the guys at war, send me Uriah the Hittite, because Uriah is one of his soldiers, one of his mighty men. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people in the state of the war, because this is what you would do if you were king. You would ask for a report from the front. Nobody texted you to tell you what happened that day. 
So he's putting on a good front in asking Uriah the right questions. Verse 8, David said, then David said to Uriah, after he was finished, go on down to your house and wash your feet. Translation, relax. Take it easy. You've traveled far. And the implication is do what you do with your wife in your home in your leisure time, because that's what he wants. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present, a present from the king was sent out after him, just so he knows he can relax. He's in the king's good graces. Take it easy. Maybe even it was a, a feast he sent with him. I don't know. Nine, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, did not go down to his house. And when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah, they are staying in tents, temporary shelters. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? Wow, those words. By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. David, the very thing that you did. Then David said to Uriah, Stay here today also, and tomorrow I'll let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day in the decks. Now David called him. We need to go the next step in this cover-up, David figures. David called him, and Uriah ate and drank before him, and David made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with the Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. Sorry, thank you for letting me give you the dramatic reading as we went through, rather than picking up all those pieces. We so often saw in the book of 1 Samuel the, the contrast between David's righteousness and, and Saul's unrighteousness, right? You know what we find in this chapter is we find another contrast, and Davis is, David is one of the players again, but in this case, David is the unrighteous. What we find in this passage is a contrast between David and Uriah. Question, you don't have to answer it now, but if you want to go back and study through this passage for yourself, question you might want to answer. How many times does David deceive or lie or manipulate in the passage? Related question, how many different ways does he deceive or lie or manipulate? Again, there's, there's a whole study here in our passage today about the spiral of deceit. Uh, the, the phrase, a can of worms, is a very fitting phrase to describe what we create when we begin to lie, right? Oh, what a tangled web we weave when at first we choose to deceive. I can't quote it exactly. Somebody famous said that. Was that Shakespeare? Thank you. You don't know either. Okay. Um, <laughs> can of worms. Because once you've begun to deceive and lie and manipulate, then you've got to cover up and you've got to change your story and you've got to further manipulate and you've got to control, right? And it just gets worse. I mean, I'm not going to track it for you. you. You can track it as you go through the passage as it just goes from bad to worse. Again, this is probably not the main point of 2 Samuel 11. It's probably not the main reason why the Holy Spirit has put this here in Scripture. But Scripture is true to life. And so there is so much we can learn. What is clear in the passage is that there's a contrast between David, who goes down that path of the spiral of deceit, and Uriah. I want you to notice Uriah's loyalty. Where is Uriah's loyalty? Verse 11. Uriah said to David, why didn't you go down to your house? Uriah says, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the field. In other words, my, my fellow soldiers. Where's, where's Uriah's 
uh, a loyalty. It's first to God, and then it's to king and country and comrades. Is that not beautiful? Every one of those things is mentioned in Uriah's response. Now, I was, um, I don't know if educated, but at least uh, given some better questions in my study through the passage this week. Several commentators raised the question of whether or not Uriah smells that something's wrong already when he comes back. Um, We know that a couple of people had to have known that Bathsheba came to the palace. Um, And we know that she had to send a messenger back to David to say, I am pregnant. By the way, the only words that Bathsheba speaks in the entire chapter are the words, I am pregnant. I don't know what you make of that. Well, I'll make a point of that in a moment. Um, So some people know. Does Uriah know? I don't know. But man, man, oh man, I do know that, that Uriah's loyalty and his words here they are cutting. They have, got, they have got a sting. They've got to go right to David's heart at this point. No, no, my king, I'm loyal to God and king and country and comrades. I would never go lay with my wife, he says to him. See, the, the real contrast here that's so tragic is the words that Uriah says and the loyalty that Uriah has. This is exactly what David used to be, right? This is what David, who had the opportunity to take the kingdom for himself by killing Saul, and he had every right to do it because Saul tried to kill him so many times. He says, far be it for me that, that, that I should raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. This is exactly what David has been. Is it a surprise to us that the great downfall of David is in the area of adultery. No. (laughs) Why? Because the author of Samuel has been tracking for us his illicit interest in women throughout, right? Multiple times he multiplies wives. Multiple times he multiplies lovers and concubines. So this is not apparently a new issue for David. David had a genuine love for God. But also, I think what the author has tracked for us, what the Spirit of God has tracked for us, is that David, in spite of his genuine and real love for God, he's also been nurturing some affections to the wrong loyalty, hasn't he? And now they're coming home to roost. Up to this point, it's been pretty easy. He sees a girl and he likes her, and it's like, yeah, I'll just marry her too. But occasionally there's a problem if she's sort of already married, and that's the scenario. He finds himself in here. There has been, it seems, a love of self over his commitment to a covenant love. Well, David's committed the great sin, and he's tried round one and round two, and depending upon how you read the passage, maybe round three to cover it up. And it hasn't worked, so he's got to take the cover up further. So now David sends a letter, verse 14. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was, as Joab kept watch on the city, that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. In other words, these these are the strongest fighters of the Ammonites that he's sending Uriah and a contingent of people towards. That's what it means by the valiant men. 17, the men of the city went out, And they fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also 
die positive. Wow, in verse 14, we just saw the contrast between David and Uriah, right? And we saw Uriah's loyalty. It's because of Uriah's loyalty that, that David could send the death warrant by the hand of Uriah and know that Uriah won't read it because he knows his character. He knows his integrity. This is such a far cry from the shepherd boy in the field who composed the hymns. You know what I thought of this week as I thought of this modern modern illustration? I hope this doesn't ruin it for you. But I thought of Aladdin. Remember when Will Smith tells, um, tells Aladdin about this problem with having wishes? And he says, you know, dude, here's the gig. Once you start wishing, you always want more wishes. You're making me promises now that you're going to give me a wish to release me. But, dude, I just want you to know, once you start down this, this path of the greed and the have-what-you-want stuff, it changes you, right? And that's part of the trajectory of the story of Aladdin. What do we found in Samuel? We found that the shepherd boy's trajectory, though he's a man after God's own heart, yet because of nurturing affections for the wrong loyalty, it's led him finally to this. Small steps over long seasons will take you great distances. Which is more indicative of your actions in your life and mine? The love of self or covenant love? Which is more indicative of your actions today and this week? Your loyalty to self or your covenant loyalty? That's the contrast that we're given in the passage. Brothers and sisters, we we all have room to grow and we always have room to grow. But the question for us this morning, I think, is are your actions and mine more consistently marked by love of self or by covenant loyalty? Man, if there's ever a good encouragement for us to make the battle right here, to draw the line and fight it right here in the small things, I think the trajectory of David's life and this passage is one that would encourage us to that. Nurture affections for the right loyalty by being faithful in the little things, by being by being faithful in today's things. Now, these are moral lessons that we rightly, I think, should and can take from 2 Samuel 11. But again, they're probably not the main reason why this passage is here. The Bible is clear about the very real sin of God's leaders. And, and that is so that we might know in, in giant blinking letters of our need for grace and of every human being's need for grace. And they show us God's grace. We could at this point, although we don't have time, we'll just mention it. We go back to 2 Samuel 7 where God made him the promises. I will, I will build you a house. I will seat a son on the throne. He, your descendant will have the throne forever. Um, I will be with you wherever you go. I mean, just the constant promises to David. And then we pause and we ask the question, I wonder if back in 2 Samuel 7, I wonder if God had any idea that there was this gal named Bathsheba who would later on come into David's life. I bet God didn't know about that. (laughs) Right? Oh, friends, does that not give you encouragement? That the promises that God has made to you through Christ, he is not unaware of your most profound failings either of your recent past or even of your coming future. I've mentioned before the comment of Dale Davis who said the kingdom, the kingdom of God is never safe in anyone's hands except, except in the hands of God's greater son. That is why 2 Samuel 11 was written here. 
Oh, David is God's anointed, and he points us to Jesus. But the author also wants us to know David is still a sinner in need of God's grace. So that's what we're going to take next from the passage. Even one of the best was prone to take. Even one of the best was prone to take. And what I mean by prone to take, I mean take as in grasp or seize or covet and have for himself. Even one of God's best. And David was one of God's best. Even he was prone to take. Pick up as Joab sends back a report in verse 18. Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messenger saying, when you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, why did you go so near, near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field. But we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall. So some of the king's servants are dead. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. And then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as the other. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it. And so encourage him, David tells the messenger. What a strange exchange between Joab and the messenger. As I was reading closely through the passage this week, I thought, the instructions from Joab to the messenger just don't make sense. If, if you tell the king, um, hey, we had a defeat, and the king says, why did you go so close to the city? Here's what I want you to tell him in defense. Oh, yeah, Uriah's dead. How is that an answer? It's not. But that's the point. The, the interaction between Joab and the messenger is a train wreck. Why? Because there's this, this deceit that's going on. There's this posturing that's going on throughout their whole discussion. And what we see at the end of that section in, verses, in verse 25 is, is we see David, he ends up faking this lordly consolation to Joab. Oh, Joab, you know, uh, yeah, what's the words? The sword devours one as well as the other. Just, just, you know, be stronger, go back at it. And he tells the messenger, encourage Joab for me. What a lordly thing to say, right? And essentially, it looks at this point like David's cover-up has succeeded. But they haven't. We know that, and the author knows that. And so these events will end with um, David's final act of cover-up as David sends for Bathsheba, verse 26. Now, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, and then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. First, I want you to just notice in verse 26, how is the woman referred to? We already know who she is. There shouldn't be a need for any explanation, right? But she's not called Bathsheba, is she? The wife of Uriah. Why? Because, because it's a stark reminder of the reality that all of David, for all of his efforts and his work and his, 
his lordliness and his king's power and his manipulation cannot change the reality. She is the wife of Uriah. It's a healthy thing as we watch movies today to remind ourselves regularly of realities like these, right? You know how easy it is to get caught up in the story and we find ourselves cheering for sin in our hearts. And I do it and I've done it. And we need the reality check like this. The sexual revolution has left us blind to the basic realities of life. It has created its own version of virtual reality. And heaven forbid that we should go along with it. As if our flesh even needed such help. The problem isn't on the screen. The problem's in here. I want you to notice also for the second time in our passage today that David takes Bathsheba. And I think that's part of the author's point. Again, I think that that is part of the reason why the passage is here. Why? Again, I want you to notice, even in this interaction, there's, there's so little comment. There's so little emotion. I mean, granted, the word mourning is mentioned. We get that Bathsheba mentions, but there's no pathos, right? And, 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 and don't you wonder, what happened when David sent for her and his guys showed up at her door? Did she fight? Did she know? Did she think, maybe this is the best I could do? Did David think that this action was going to demonstrate to everybody the magnanimity of the king's heart? That, that now he's taken in a, a widow of one of my fighting men and cared for her and their little one, right? I mean, it, it, just, it just doesn't touch on any of that. I mean, we can put the pieces together and we can guess. Why don't we have those conversations and, and a myriad of others? All of this action and this brevity helps make the point. David was at work. David was doing. David was controlling. David was manipulating. And what's the primary thing that David did? I know he sent a lot, but a lot of people sent. The primary thing David did is he took. He took. David, who on so many occasions would not seize the kingdom for himself, right? Will now seize Bathsheba. And what did Samuel, back in, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, when the nation demanded a king, do you remember what, what, what Samuel told them? He said, okay, I'm going to give you a king, but I want you to know how, how kings work. He's going to take your sons, and he's going to take your daughters, and he's going to take from your fields, and he's going to take from the best of your flocks, and he's going to take, and he's going to take, and he's going to take. And up till now, David has been the exact opposite. He's been beautiful, right? But now in chapter 11, he takes. Up until now, David has not taken, he's trusted. And that is why he's been God's king. Everything that ever really mattered about David can pretty much be summed up in, in one little phrase from, from 2 Samuel chapter 5. The Lord was with him. I mean, everything else it doesn't have much anything to do with David. It has everything to do with God's grace and mercy and his purpose. And David went with it and he ran with it and he trusted it even against all odds. But not today. Now David is taken, 
And now the Lord being with him hangs in the balance. We're not going to finish the story today. There's too much in chapters 11 and 12 to take them in one large gulp. So the story is going to end on a precipice, if you will. But don't worry, you'll be able to sleep tonight. But I just want to point this out. I want you to feel the weight of it. As we've done so many times, let's go back to Hannah's song. Because according to Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2, those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. But the Lord exalts the horn of his anointed. David is the Lord's anointed and God has exalted him time and time and time again. But guess what? For the first time in his life, at least in the most profound way, I should say, David finds himself in the first part of 1 Samuel 2.10 rather than the second part of 1 Samuel 2.10. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. We really don't know at the end of chapter 11 what's going to happen of David, spiritually speaking. If David was doing the controlling, if he was acting, if he was taking, where was God? Did you notice there's almost no mention of God in the entire chapter? Almost. Besides Uriah's subtle phrase that he was serving his Lord and the ark was mentioned. Till we get to verse 27. The passage ends, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Where was God? God was waiting and God was watching. I want you to also notice here that there is a contrast that, that we need to see, and it's harder to see in our translations, so I'm going to give it to you in the slightly more literal Hebrew. Here's what you need to see. Go back to the verse, verse 25. What did David tell the messenger to tell Uriah? Do not let this thing displease you. You know what the literal rendering in the Hebrew is? Do not let this thing be evil in your sight. And what does verse 27 say? The thing that David had done was evil in God's sight. David's last instruction that we have in the passage here is, this is not evil, just it's going to be okay, Joab. And consoling himself, it's going to be okay what you've done. I, th I think we got it now. But God steps in and he says, my eyes see the eyelids of the Lord test the, the, the deeds of the sons of men. What a tragedy that David thinks that he's succeeded and he's getting away with it. But you know what? We never get away with it. We never get away with any sin. The big ones and the little ones. Every single sin committed by every human being will either be dealt with in hell or on the cross. Period. Which would we rather? Uriah ends up dead. But David ends up doing evil question which is worse let's close out this morning then and I'm going to jump ahead chronologically just a bit to bring it to a close because we don't get to finish chapter 12 but this is where chapter 12 is going to go this is going to be the, the the consummation of the story and for our sake we can't leave this morning without hearing some level of the story's consummation and it's this, come and cast yourself on covenant love. Come, come and cast yourself on covenant love. You know what the problem is with all of the events of 2 Samuel chapter 11? It's that David doesn't die. That's the problem. He should die. But what about us? What are we to do? God's not done with David. God has a purpose for David. 
Same with you and me by his grace. After Saul and Jonathan fell slain on Mount Gilboa, David composed a hymn, a, a mighty lament, and it was an ode to their beauty and, and to their glory and to the tragedy that befell them. And it was there that David said twice, oh, how the mighty have fallen. I just wonder, what if David could look back somewhat objectively on this experience, or at least later enough to have some perspective? What if he could look back on his own downfall and he could compose a hymn? What might he say? Well, you know what the good news is? He did. Go ahead and turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, go to your right. And I just want to leave you with a couple of verses. You'll notice the superscript or the first words under Psalm 51, which aren't even numbered in most of our Bibles that say, A Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Psalm 51 is fittingly written after 2 Samuel chapter 12, but for the sake of bringing consummation of our passage this morning, I just want to go here quickly. What I want you to see is David does not. He, he does look back to his mighty fall, but he doesn't mention his beauty. He doesn't mention his glory, but he focuses on his sin and he focuses on God's greatness. Verse 1, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. That's God's covenant love. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Pause. Does that phrase sound familiar? And done what is evil in your sight. The man who said, let this thing not be evil in your sight, has now repented and confessed. Did David only sin against God? Did he not kind of sin a little against Bathsheba or maybe Uriah or maybe, holy cow, the entire kingdom? Yeah, the point of verse 4 is, is it's a comparison for the sake of, of emphasis. Against you only, Lord. I have, I have sinned supremely, especially before you. And now, Lord, I agree with you. I say just what you say. I have done evil in your sight. Freedom comes when we call sin, sin. And whether that sin is adultery or lust or self-deceit in a myriad of ways in our lives, freedom comes when we agree with God about what we've done. And our words change from, don't let this thing look evil, to, Lord, this thing is evil, and I agree with what you call it. That's when freedom comes, right? Notice also where David starts. Again, Psalm 51, and we're almost done, but just a couple more verses pick up in, well, back in the middle of four. So you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, verse five, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Does David, when he makes his full confession, does he just go back and start with the events? No, he has agreed. What he's done is heinous, but he doesn't just start there. He admits his true nature. He does not just start with his actions. He exposes his heart and he says, God, it's not just the adultery and the murder and the deceit and the scheming and the manipulation and the lying to so many different people in so many different ways. 
Lord God, my very being, my very nature is to be treacherous. I was conceived in sin. And you desire truth in the innermost parts. Lord God, I can't cleanse me, but I come. Cleanse me down to my very bones and in my soul. In true repentance, we come to agree with God, both about our actions and our motives. We come to seek cleansing both for our deeds and our hearts. And you know what? Sometimes it's only as we confess and as we agree that you know what begins to happen? God starts to peel back the layers. And suddenly our self-deceit begins to fade away like a fog when the sun rises. And we begin to see, you know what? I was, I was a fool to think that. And you know what else? And then there's this, and then there's this. And you know what? Freedom happens as the Spirit of God convicts and just peels back the layers. He says, my child, I know. Keep coming. Come into the light. Let it burn away the fog. Let it, let it split the clouds and disperse the darkness. When we do come for covenant love, that's what David came for in Psalm 51.1. Not because of me, Lord, but because of your covenant love. We come now today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he washes us. David cast himself on that covenant love. That's what we have in Psalm 51. I'm just going to end with this. You don't need to turn down there, turn there, but jot down Psalm 32. It doesn't say that this was written in this time of David's life, but I'm suspicious that it was. You decide for yourself as you hear these words. Psalm 32 what I want you to hear is that David has cast himself on covenant love and now he's experiencing it. Verses 1 and 2. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Stand with me and let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, ah, we praise you that you are the God of truth. There is no deceit in you. There is no treachery. There is no lie. You see clearly and you bring your truth to bear upon our lives. And Lord, we have failed you as a people. And we have failed you personally in so many different ways. And we look at David and we, we take some heart that if he could fail, I guess I'm not surprised that I could. And we take heart that you would tell us that David is not our hope, but that his greater son is the greater David, the one who says, let me wash your feet. Lord, I pray today, if any of us have a conscience seared, we all know we've sinned, but if any are here this morning and they've sinned and not dealt with it, Lord, we pray today that they would come, that we would come for covenant love and that we would shortly be able to sing with David how blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose iniquity is covered, that it is not imputed to him. And in his heart there is no deceit. We do not want to live double hearts before you, so help us. Lord God, if any in our midst here this morning have not yet come to see your profound grace, have come to see that we are not a room full, a, a, a showcase, a collection of trophies of our goodness, but rather we're a showcase of your grace. 
just as David will be. If they understand that today, might they come for grace? Might they come and know that you can take away their shame and forgive anything? Lord, our God, we praise you. The mighty do fall, but the mighty one, our Savior, he lifts us up and keeps us. Help us to walk with him, we ask. All for your glory in Christ's name, amen.